This week is a double Parsha. We have the Parsha of Matos and the Parsha of Masse, and we're going to conclude the book of Numbers this week. And this week we have, really, it's a marathon. The first Parsha, Matos, has 112 verses. The second Parsha, Masse, has 132 verses, making a cumulative total of 244 verses and eight mitzvos in addition to those verses. And the first Parsha, Parsha's Matos, begins with the laws of vows and oaths, which are verbal creations of prohibitions. A vow is when someone makes a prohibition on a thing that's previously permitted, and the prohibition of a vow lies in the object, whereas by an oath, the prohibition of the oath lies in the person. That's the technical difference between the two, but of course there's books in the Talmud that deal with this. So the parasha begins, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing that Hashem has commanded. If a man takes a vow to Hashem or swears an oath to establish a prohibition upon himself, he shall not desecrate his word according to whatever comes from his mouth, shall he do. So this is the law that once someone makes a vow or an oath, they are obligated to stick to their word, to maintain the word, and to not transgress it. So it's interesting, Rashi points out is that this is a commandment that Moses is conveying not to the children of Israel, but to the heads of the tribes of Israel directly. And uh, why would it be different than the rest of the Torah, where Moses speaks to the children of Israel directly? So Rashi tells us that, yes, of course, he spoke to everyone, but the way it worked was that he spoke first to the heads of the tribes, first to the leaders, and then subsequently he would speak to everyone else. And that was true not only by the laws of vows, but by every Torah commandment, it was first to the heads of the tribes and subsequently to the rest of the people. So why specifically over here in this mitzvah are we told that Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes? So Rashi tells us because the heads of the tribes, the leaders, the clergymen, the rabbinate, they have a special role to play with respect to vows because there are parts of the laws of vows that tell us that if someone wants to annul the vow, they made a vow, but they didn't realize how bad it would be, how painful it would be, then they could go to the rabbi, they could go to the clergyman, and he can annul the vow if there is grounds for it. So because there's an outsized responsibility that the heads of the tribes have in this particular mitzvah, we are highlighting the fact that they were the first ones to get the instruction from Moses but really, that was true by every mitzvah, and only subsequently was told to the rest of the Jewish people. That's Rashi. The Ramban says differently. He says no. He says Moses spoke only to the heads of the tribes. This commandment, or at least portions of this commandment, was not conveyed at all to the Jewish people. Why? Because there are some components of this law that is a need-to-know basis. Because the laws of vows, the laws of oaths, the lowest, the laws of prohibitions that we create verbally are so severe, of course we know that the Yom Kippur service, the most important day of the Jewish calendar, it begins with a public annulment of vows with the Kol Nidre. It's a very serious thing. And because it's such a serious thing, and we don't necessarily attribute it with such severity and such gravity, therefore it's it's important for the people to not know, or the populace, the, the, the masses, to not know the loopholes, because if they know the loopholes, then there's a risk that they may flippantly make vows, and that's a problem. And therefore, the laws of annulling the vows are conveyed just solely, exclusively to the heads of the tribes, but they're not conveyed 
to everyone else. And the Ramban adds that the whole concept of annulment of vows is actually not explicit in the Torah. It's what's called a halacha l'moshmisinai. It is a law that was conveyed to Moses orally at Sinai and never written down in the Torah. Or maybe it's only hinted in the Torah. And that, again, is for the same reason to not encourage people to be flippant about vows and to say, oh, I have the emergency backstop, the the safety measure uh, to get me out of this vow by going over to the rabbi and getting it annulled. Now, there's another interesting thing here in this uh, introduction of the parsha. Uh, the words that Moses used to convey his prophecy, it's this is the thing. This is the word that Hashem has commanded. And Rashi tells us that all the prophets use similar verbiage, but only Moses can say this is the word. And this is a theme that we've encountered many times throughout the Torah, that the prophecy of Moses is on a different level than the prophecy of the rest of the prophets. Moses does not have to filter the prophecy through himself. He doesn't embellish it. He doesn't interpret it. It's solely the word of God. This is the word of God. Whereas other prophets, they are given a vision that they have to interpret and therefore has to kind of filter through them. And thus the Talmud tells us that all the prophets have their own style because each one of the prophets has to absorb the message, digest it, and then reformulate it to the rest of the people. Whereas Moses, he is a funnel of God, The word of God as given to him is conveyed to the rest of the people. Now, more broadly speaking, there is an important concept here about the power of speech. It's another theme that we encountered at the Torah, that what makes humans special is their capacity for oral, for verbal communication. In fact, when Adam was created, Adam is made into something unique. And our commentaries tell us there that Adam is exemplified his characteristic that's most outstanding is the fact that he's capable of oral and verbal communication. And here we see this idea of a vow, of the power of speech to create a hitherto non-existent prohibition. This is essentially the mitzvah that really highlights the power of a human. Of course, God gives us 613 mitzvahs, 613 commandments in the Torah. But we have the power to make 614, so to speak. We have the power. If I say I'm making a vow that I'm not going to eat this orange, then there's now a 614th commandment that I created myself to ban, to prohibit this orange. And if I consume it, then I am guilty of transgressing a law of the Torah because that is the law that I could create. That's the power of Speech, and that's the power of humanity. We were created in the image of God, just as God can make mitzvos through vows and oaths, man can make mitzvos as well. So that's the general idea of vows. Now it begins to delineate the various kinds of vows depending upon what kind of person gives those vows. So what if you have a vow of an unmarried girl who's not yet an adult? She's at this twilight zone between being a child and being totally under the dominion of her father to being an adult and being her own responsibility. So if there is a vow of an unmarried girl who's not quite an adult, so she's under the age of 12 and a half, then the vows are subject to the responsibility, the oversight of her father. If the father immediately, when he hears the vow, the prohibition that she establishes upon herself, then it depends. If he's silent, 
then that is tacit acquiescence and that vow has validity. However, if right when he hears it, he annuls it, then she is absolved of that vow. That vow loses its potency and it is no longer active. So she makes a vow. She's still under the domain of her father. Father hears it, annuls it. Then the vow is eliminated. However, there's a very interesting Rashi over here. Suppose the girl did not know that the father had eliminated the vow and she transgressed the vow. So the verse tells us, and Hashem will forgive her for her father had restrained her. And Rashi explains what this means is that this is a woman, a girl, and she makes a vow and her father annuls it, but she does not know that her father had annulled it. And later on, we'll see that this also may apply by a married woman. When she's under the domain of her husband, he may annul her vows under certain circumstances. But now the woman who still thinks the vow is active goes and transgresses the vow. So the truth is the vow was not present, but she thought it was, and therefore she still needs an atonement. And perhaps we can deduce from this is that every sin really has two components. Of course, there's the act of the sin itself. And number two is the intention to go against the will of God, against God's instruction. And over here, despite the fact that there was no sinful act, after all, the vow was annulled, there's still sinful intent She thought it was still active, and therefore there is a need for atonement. But the verse tells us she doesn't need to worry about it. Hashem will forgive her. That's the law of vows of an unmarried girl. Well, what if she is married? And even with a married woman, there's two kinds of married women. There's a married woman that she's engaged, so she's still partially under the domain, under the dominion of her father, and partially under the dominion of her fiancé. Well, then it's a collaborative effort for the vows to be annulled. Both the father and the fiancé need to annul it. Whereas when she's married, she's under the domain of the husband and he can annul the vows. And again, this does not apply to all vows. It's only vows that cause pain. So she says, I'm not showering for a month. It's a vow. She'll regret it. There's pain involved and it could be annulled. However, in verse 10, we read, what if she is a divorcee? She's a widow. Then it's entirely in her control, and therefore she has no escape window. She cannot have her husband who is divorced or is dead. It's not possible for them to be annulled. What if the time has come and the time has passed and there was tacit acquiescence at the time, and then there is a subsequent attempt to try to annul it? So there's an annulment after acquiescence. If he shall revoke it after his having her, so he heard it first, he acquiesced, and then he tries to annul it, post facto, he shall bear his iniquity. Even though it's not his sin, after all, she made the vow and she transgressed the vow, but because he lent the impression that he annulled it when the truth was that it was too late for that, therefore it is his responsibility. Rashi tells us a general principle that if someone caused another person to stumble to do a sin, then the person who causes the sin is the one who is ultimately responsible. So that's the laws of the vows, and we begin chapter 31. And chapter 31 is to go back to a theme we saw last week, namely the war with the Midianites. We told them, we were told last week about the instruction, and now it's the implementation of that war and that total destruction of this nation, the Midianites. Hashem is what Moses is saying, take vengeance 
for the children of Israel against the Midianites. Afterwards, you shall be gathered unto your people. So the message here to Moses is, this is your last mission. Destroy the Midianites, and then you're going to be gathered to your people, i.e. you're going to die. And we find out in Rashi that even though Moses knew that his death was contingent upon the war with Midian, thus he could have forestalled his passing by just forestalling the war, still right away he jumped into it and he proceeded to arrange the war with the Midianites. So Moses brought the people saying, arm men from amongst yourself to make war with Midian, a thousand from a tribe, a thousand from a tribe, for all the tribes of Israel shall you send a legion. There's 12 tribes, really it's 12 plus one, and therefore you're going to have 13,000 warriors, not regular people. Rashi tells us these are righteous people. They're going to be the warriors, and they're going to exact vengeance against the Midianites. So a few things over here. First of all, we see the idea that the people that are being selected are the righteous ones. And I think this right away shows us how unusual this conflict is going to be. The reason why you need righteous people is because it's a spiritual conflict, not just a physical encounter of two armies. And more broadly speaking, this is, again, the people who are doing the will of God. Like the verse says, Arm men from much yourself for the legion that they may be against Midian to inflict Hashem's, God's vengeance against Midian. This is not the people of Israel versus the people of Midian, an army versus an army. It's God against the Midianites, but the Jewish people are, so to speak, doing the will of God. And therefore, it's important to have righteous people who can be people, can be soldiers that are acting not on their own accord, but as emissaries of God. There's another interesting Rashi here. It's God's vengeance against the Midianites. Why is it God's vengeance? Isn't it the vengeance of the Jewish people? Didn't the Midianites orchestrate that plague that caused 24,000 of the Jews to, to die? Rashi tells us very powerful in verse 3 that the reason why it's considered the vengeance of God against Midian because people who stand up against the Jewish people, it is as if they're standing up against God. And the broader idea here is that The Jewish people, we're the equivalent of God's emissaries, we're God's ambassadors in this world. And that's the responsibility that was picked up by Abraham and is perpetuated and maintained by our people throughout our history. And therefore, because we represent God, when someone attacks us, in effect, it's considered as if, in effect, they attacked God, and therefore, God's vengeance will flare up against them. Now, the verse tells us here in verse 4, a thousand from a tribe, a thousand from a tribe. It repeats the fact that each tribe is going to contribute a thousand. So is it 1,000 or is it 2,000? So the Midrash tells us that actually it was 2,000. Each tribe contributed 2,000. 1,000 is going to be the warriors. And a second thousand, those are going to be people who are dedicated to praying for the well-being of of the conflict, of the encounter, of the skirmish with the Midianites. Thus, in effect, you have each soldier in the war is going to have a companion, a parallel soldier who is not doing war at all, but is doing prayer and is going to travel with them to the battlefront. And again, we see the idea that this is not a regular conflict. 
this is a conflict of the Jewish people acting per the instruction of God and invoking their merits. So what do we have? We have a thousand from each tribe plus the tribe of Levi. And then you read the verse 5 and you find something very unusual. So there were delivered from the thousands of the children of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for the legion. So Rashi tells us in verse 4 that it was 13,000 because there was also a thousand from the tribe of Levi. And then in verse 5 we read that it's actually only 12,000. So what's the answer? And the answer is that in verse 5 it says that there were 12,000 that were delivered. What that means is, Rashi tells us, that these people didn't want to do it. Everyone knew that the war with Midian was connected to the passing of Moses. So the soldiers say, we're not interested. We don't want to join this conflict. We don't be the one, we don't be the people who are going to accelerate the passing of Moses. And therefore, they had to be delivered. They had to be coached. They had to be urged to be given over to this mission, even though it's going to cause Moses to die. Whereas the tribe of Levi, because they were so singularly focused on doing the will of God, they did not need to be forced. They did not need to be even encouraged. They were in, even though it meant the death of Moses. After all, if we're doing the will of God, that's the right thing for us to do. So thus, you have 12,000 soldiers from the rest of the tribe that had to be coached, that had to be urged, maybe even coerced. But the tribe of Levi is always ready. So we have a thousand from each tribe, a total of 13,000. And at its helm, we have Pinchas, Phineas, the son of Lazarus Cohen. This is, of course, the hero that we read about in last week's Parsha. And together with them, they're taking with them the sacred vessels and the trumpets of the tabernacle. Now, why is Pinchas leading the charge and not Elazar? his father. You would think that the priority would be given to the father, not to Pinchas. So Rashi gives us three different answers. Number one, he tells us that after all, the war with the Midianites, that began much earlier. And the first one to strike a killing blow against the enemies of the Jewish people and against the enemies of God was, of course, Pinchas. He began with the mitzvah, therefore he should conclude the mitzvah. He has the rights, so to speak. He has the rights of first refusal to finish the job that he began. And again, we see that this is a unique war. It's a mitzvah. It's not a regular arbitrary conflict. In addition, Rashi tells us that Pinchas was a descendant of Joseph via his mother's line, and the Midianites, they tormented Joseph, and therefore he has to go exact revenge for his great-grandfather, revenge from Joseph. And finally, Rashi tells us is that Pinchos was anointed as a special Kohen Gadol, as a special high priest, one specifically that is anointed for war, and thus it was his prerogative to go lead the charge against the Midianites. Now, there's a very fascinating Rashi here. Rashi tells us that the reason why they took the vessels of the tabernacle, specifically the ark and the tzitz, the tzitz was the gold headplate that the high priest wore, is because who was on the other side? We have Bilaam still alive. He's on the other side. And he is a sorcerer par excellence. And what he did, Rashi tells us, is that he would use his sorcery and his other tricks to have all the teams of Midian floating in the air and thus inaccessible 
to the attacking Jews. But once they were presented with these vessels of the high priest that had the name of God etched upon it, their sorcery would cease and they would tumble to the ground and they were vulnerable for the Jewish people to attack. Very interesting and very dramatic and striking picture here that we get from Rashi. Now, there is another amazing idea that's conveyed by the Baal HaTurim. He asks the question, you know, we have this contingency to go attack the Midianites, but there are some people that are missing, namely the princes, the heads of each tribe. If you think there's a contingency from each tribe, each tribe is sending their militia of a thousand men, shouldn't the heads of the tribe, the princes of the tribe, shouldn't they be there to lead their people into this conflict? Why were the princes not included in the army that sent to attack the Midianites? And the Baltum says a very powerful idea. We know, we just read about the prince, the head of the tribe of Shimon. He was, of course, Zimri, who was skewered by Pimchas. And what are you going to have? You're going to have all the heads of the tribes, and the tribe of Shimon is noticeably, conspicuously absent, and everyone's going to remember what he did. And in order to not embarrass the tribe of Shimon, the Almighty decided to not include any of the princes in order to spare the tribe of Shimon from the shame of being reminded of the fate that happened to their head of the tribe, to their prince, to Zimri. So they begin the war, they massed against Midian, and they killed every male, all the adult males. The This was a totally one-sided conflict. They killed the kings of Midian along with their slain ones, the five kings of Midian, and Bilam. As well, Bilaam, son of Ba'ar, they slew him with the sword. What was Bilaam doing there? So Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud, Bilaam was coming to collect his reward. After all, even though his attempted curses went nowhere, they were forced into being turned into blessings, but he gave the advice to go send the Moabite girls against the Jewish people, and consequently, he said he deserves his reward, and therefore he was in town and he was slain. Now, it is interesting, Rashi points out, that he was slain with the sword. Why does it need to mention the means through which Bilaam was killed? And this is a continuation of the subplot that we read about a few weeks ago. Bilaam was someone who tried to attack the Jewish people specifically with their strengths. They were the voice, was the voice of Jacob. They used words. That was their strength. And therefore, Bilaam, he dropped his modus operandi and he adopted the Jewish people's modus operandi, namely words, to go try to attack them. And therefore, what happens over here? Here, it's exactly tit for tat. The Jewish people, usually they use the power of Jacob. The voice is the voice of Jacob. And here, in order to repay Bilaam precisely with what he tried to do to the Jewish people, they drop the words, they pick up the sword of Esau, and they attack him, they attack Bilaam, in the manner that is really unnatural from them. They took the methods of, of Esau, of Esau, and they attacked him with the sword. So the war is a total success. The Adult men are killed, the children and the women are taken captive, the cattle and the flock are taken as booty, their 
edifices are destroyed and everything is presented to Moses, to Elazar, all the animals, all the captives, all the booty, everything is laid out before them. And Moses begins with a rebuke of the commanders, of the officers of the army. And he tells them, why did you let the females live after all? They were the ones who caused the sin and the concomitant blade. And the reason why we're attacking them is because of the actions of the females. And therefore, it's inappropriate for you to let them survive. Now, it's interesting. Rashi tells us that the rebuke was directed at the officers, not at the regular army. And again, a theme that we've seen already a few times This teaches us that the responsibility lies with the leaders. The leaders, they're in charge of the well-being, of the proper behavior of their underlings, and therefore the officers, they're the ones who are beat by Moses, not the regular army people. The officers, they're in charge, and therefore they have the responsibility. They're attacked. They're rebuked by Moses. You shouldn't have let the females live So now, kill every male among the unchildren, and every woman who was with any male. Those are the people that you should kill, but not the young children. How do they determine who was someone who was uh, not a virgin? Rashi tells us, and this is quoted in the Talmud, that they would use a miraculous fashion. They would take the tzitz, the aforementioned forehead plate of the high priest, and they would pass the women before them, and the women who were not virgins, they would turn a shade of green, and thus we knew that they were indeed guilty. Now again, when we read this, it's very hard for us to really make sense of this. You know, this sounds like in, in modern generations, we'd call this a war crime. This sounds like, you know, there's defenseless women and children who are being killed here with this war with Midian, it's very hard for us to stomach it. And I'm not going to give an answer necessarily, but I think it's important for us to really keep in mind the fact that this is not a war of people versus people. Later on, we're going to find out at the end of this chapter that not a single one of the Jewish soldiers died or was a casualty of any sort or was injured. This tells us this is not a normal conflict. And thus, we can port this conflict over to our conflicts and say, oh, this is the proper way to behave. This is the Jewish people and the most righteous of them acting specifically per the instructions of God. And yes, it's hard for us to understand why God would want that. But generally speaking, you know, if there is a plague that's a, so to speak, natural plague, uh, the bubonic plague, it comes and attacks that kills 30 million people in Europe. It's a hard question for us to struggle with. Why would God do that? And we have to understand that this conflict is the same sort of thing. We have to ask the questions, not the Jewish people. They were not acting as per their own guidance. In fact, we see that they they withheld, they curbed the violence. They didn't want to do it. And this was all essentially the work of God. And his ways are sometimes a little bit mysterious to us. We don't understand why he would want that. But again, it's a different kind of conflict. And thus, we can't say, oh, we have to act in that same way today. Okay, so after the war with Midian is over, there's a few items here that are related. And the first idea that is conveyed is the idea of koshering utensils, which essentially means that if you have a utensil, an item, a pot or whatever, that was owned by a non-Jew and there's non-kosher food in it, that food, that taste of the food is absorbed into the walls of the pot and therefore it has to be purged. And just like you have, let's say you have non-kosher meat that goes into a pot, the pot's boiled and 
this is the concept is is that the taste and and the residue of the food goes into the walls of the pot in order for it to be cleaned it has to be purged in the same way that it was absorbed. So if you have, let's say, a pot, it has to be put in boiling water. The boiling water cleanses, so to speak, the walls of the pot, and it is rendered as new. And in addition, besides for cleansing it, it has to be dunked into the mikvah, into the ritual bath. And there's an interesting idea in the Talmud, in the Jerusalem Talmud, that tells us that just as you have the idea of a non-Jew who wants to convert to Judaism. They have to be submerged in a mikvah. Similarly, if you have an implement that is going to be upgraded, so to speak, from being owned by a non-Jew to being owned by a Jew, it has to go in through the same process. It has to go through a mikvah. So that's one of the laws that we learn in the aftermath of this war with the Jewish people and the Midianites. What did they do with all their new vessels that they acquired? But it's interesting that the author of this teaching is Elazar the Kohen. He said to the men of the Legion who came to battle. And he conveyed this law that you have to put it through fire in order to purify it. And the obvious question is, is wait a minute, isn't that Moses' responsibility? Isn't he the one who's supposed to convey the law to the Jewish people? So why is Elazar doing the responsibilities and not Moses? And Rashi tells us, because Moses... He got a little angry at the officers. He rebuked the officers. He forgot the law. And Elazar had to step in and teach the Jewish people the law. And Rashi also tells us that this is not the first, it's not even the second time that it happened. Twice previously, once Moses gets a little bit angry, he forgets the law. And that happened, A, during the week of inauguration, and B, when he hit the rock and the laws that he forgot afterwards. So that's the uh, idea, the idea that's actually still relevant today. You buy a pot from a non-Jew, you have to make sure that it is A, kosher, and B, you have to dunk it in the mikvah to make sure that it is elevated, so to speak, to be worthy. And uh, there are many laws related to what to do with cutlery and, and pots and pans and what particular materials need to be purified, etc. Okay, so then we have the tallying of the spoils and the division of the spoils. And it goes through the exact amount of cows and donkeys and sheep and and gold, everything that was collected and plundered from the people of Midian. And it's now presented to Moses. And half of it is going to be given to the people that went to war. And the other half of the booty is going to be given to the rest of the Jews. And there is a very detailed delineation of the spoils and what percentage of it was given to the temple coffers, etc. And of course, the obvious question is, you could just simplify it, you could shorten it, you could tell the story in a more succinct fashion by just saying, well, there was a lot of booty, you don't have to list how many cows, how many donkeys, how many sheep, etc. So the Ramban tells us that the reason why it delineated the spoils and what percentage of it was given to the temple coffers is to show us, A, how much booty they got. It's a tremendous amount of plunder that was taken from the Midianites, and that shows us what kind of formidable enemy they were. And consequently, it accentuates the miracle that not only did the war end up successful, but it was done in such a one-sided fashion against such a formidable enemy. 
And then in verse 48, we read the following. The commanders of the thousands, the legions, the officers of the thousands, the officers of the hundreds, they approached Moses. So these are the officers, the commanders of the war. They come to Moses and they said to him, your servants took a census of the men of war under our command and not a man of us is missing. So we have brought an offering for Hashem, what any man found of gold vessels, anklet, bracelet, ring, earring, clasp, we're going to give that to atone for our souls before Hashem. This is an amazing thing. A whole war, tremendous amount of casualties on the other side, not one casualty, no injuries. And again, I think this demonstrates what an amazing miracle and it's clearly a different kind of battle. And these leaders, and they went on to give their gold that they got as a thank you to God that nobody was killed. Now, the commentaries quote here another teaching from the Midrash. In addition to no one getting killed, no one became enticed by the Midianite women a second time. And it's interesting that we have the officers, the heads of the thousands, the heads of the hundreds, they're the ones who are coming forth and saying, you know, we want to thank God that none of our underlings, none of our charges suffered. And this again shows us a theme that we've seen again and again throughout the Parsha, the idea of the responsibilities of leaders over the people that they are leading. These officers were, in effect, not just the military leaders. They were almost like the the spiritual commissars of the army. Had people died, it would be their responsibility. Had people sinned with the Midianites, it would have also have been their responsibility. And now that they're so happy that no one sinned, They want to give a donation and they want to give the gold to the coffers. Now, Rashi also tells us, well, if no one died and no one sinned, why do they need to atone? What's there to atone for? So Rashi tells us that it is for illicit thoughts. Yes, nobody sinned, but who knows what people may have thought. And specifically, they're taking the jewelry. This is jewelry, of course, of women. Some of it is very intimate jewelry. And who knows, maybe people thought illicit thoughts, and therefore there is a need to atone. This concludes, again, a very perplexing, a very difficult subject to grapple with. This war is not a war that we've ever encountered in our lifetimes. It's a totally miraculous war, but it's being waged in a way that we're very uncomfortable with. And I think the way to understand it is to recognize that this is not a normal war. This is not a normal conflict. This is God acting and, of course, the ways of God are often not understood by mortal man. Chapter 32 tells us the episode of the Gadites, the tribe of God, and the Reubenites. The Jewish people are currently on the east bank of the Jordan River. They're in the plains of Moab. They have now countered the Amorites, the Bashanites, the Midianites. There is tremendous amount of land on the east bank of the Jordan and Two tribes, the tribes of Reuben, tribe of God, they have abundant livestock and they decide that they want to stay on the East Bank and permanently dwell there. So they approach Moses and they ask the following, we don't want to cross the Jordan. We want to have this land as our ancestral homeland. We don't want to enter the land of Canaan. We want to settle here permanently. And Moses' response with a very sharp and biting rebuke, your brother's going to go out to battle and you're going to settle here? How is it possible that you're going to allow your brethren to go engage in a war and you're going to be calm and at ease and at peace 
here on your pastures on the east bank of the Jordan. That's his first rebuke. In addition, he says that you're going to weaken the resolve of your brethren. They're going to see you standing over here and they're going to assume the reason why you don't want to cross is because you're scared of the war. And then they're going to be more scared of the Canaanites. And this is a thing that we've seen before, Moshe tells them. And he reinvokes the story of the miraglim of the stouts that were sent to spy the land. This, of course, is 38 years prior, but he's telling them this story's happened before, and it seems like it's repeating in front of our very eyes. We have people that are resistant to enter the land of Canaan. They're scared, and that ended very poorly for the first people. Why would you do the same thing again? So they clarify their question. They said, okay, we're going to build pens for our flocks. We're going to build homes for our livestock, cities for our children, but we're not going to stay here permanently. We're going to go with the rest of the Jewish people. We're going to cross over the Jordan. We're going to join them for the war. We're going to be there until they settle down and they conquer and they divide the land. And then we will return to our homes. We'll return to the east bank of the Jordan and we'll live there permanently. We're not going to abandon them. We're not scared of the Canaanites. We're not going to let our brothers go to war without us. We're going to do our share, but we'll end up residing permanently after the years of war and conquest and settlement of the land of Canaan. Everyone else gets their share. The other 10 tribes are going to get their share in Canaan, and then we'll return to our homes and our cities that we built on the East Bank. Now, Rashi points out something very important. Rashi says that when they clarify their request to Moses, they present their proposal in an unusual fashion. They talk first about their flock and about their livestock and the pens that they're going to build for their animals. And subsequently, they talk about the cities for their small children. And Rashi tells us that these people, they love their money more than they love their children. They're more worried about what's going to be with our livestock, with our sheep, than what's going to be with our children. Therefore, they preempted talking about building shelters for their animals to building cities for their children. But they present their offer to Moses, and Moses agrees, and he recapitulates the terms of the deal, and he tells them, okay, build for yourself cities for your children and pens for your flocks. So again, Moses, he flips it around. He first tells them, build cities for your small children, and then pens for your flock, for your cattle, for your livestock. He is trying to reorient their priorities, priorities of your children first, then your animals. Cross over the Jordan, and you could have permanently the land on the east bank of the Jordan River, provided that you join with the rest of your brethren on the west bank in the conquest of the land of Canaan. And if you do that, we have a deal. And ultimately, a deal was struck. In the end, half of the tribe of Menashe joined in. They weren't originally part of this petition, but they joined in. So in the end, you'll have uh, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half the tribe of Menashe. And they're going to join. In fact, we read in the book of Joshua that they actually kept their, their word. They kept their deal. They joined their conquest of, of, of Canaan. And after it was done, they returned in somewhat of a dramatic fashion, they they returned to their homes on the east bank of the Parsha, the first Parsha. Parsha's Matas concludes with the names of all the cities that they built on the east bank. Parsha's Masse begins with enumerating all the pit stops that the nation had 
from Egypt until they settled in their final location in the wilderness in the plains of Moab. And this, again, is very unusual, very out of character for the Torah, because the Torah usually tries to mince words, tries to be as thrifty, as skimpy as possible with words. And here it goes through place after place, pit stop after pit stop, stop after stop from Egypt until they arrived in the plains of of Moab. So why is there a need? Why is there an imperative to list, to count all the stops of the nation? So Rashi tells us that this shows God's kindness. There's a total of 42 stops in 40 years. But of those 42 stops, Rashi proves that 14 of them were in the first year, eight of them were in the last year. Thus, for the middle 38 years, there was only 20 different stops. And therefore, it shows that even though they were at the mercy of God, the clouds lift, they have to travel, but they weren't so itinerant. Within 38 years, they only had 20 stops. Not so bad. You're moving every other year or so. The Ramban, he quotes the Rambam, and he gives us a different reason why the Torah felt the need to enumerate all the pit stops of the nation, and that is to accentuate the miracle of a nation of millions of people surviving in total wilderness for 40 years. They're far from civilization. Don't think that they're hugging civilization. They're next to water. They're next to agriculture. No. Well, a list of places. All these places. Find these places on the map. Totally out of society, out of civilization. Yet they survived. It is a miracle. Now, in the past, we've mentioned the idea that the that the number 42 is a very important number in, in Jewish philosophy because there is a name of God that corresponds to 42. It's the 42-letter name of God. So there is an idea, of course, this is a more Kabbalistic idea, that each one of these 42 stops was about unlocking a certain achievement. They had to have these 42 stops because there's 42 levels that they had to acquire and each stop, they stayed at that stop as long as it was necessary to unlock that achievement, and then they moved on to the next stop. There is another statement here from Rabbeinu Bachai, a very deep idea. He tells us that these 42 stops that the Jewish people had when they left Egypt is a harbinger of themes to come. In the future, he tells us, the prophets tell us that there is going to be a redemption that is going to mirror the first redemption. Just the Jewish people left from Egypt and they traveled through a wilderness, so too in the ultimate redemption, there's going to be many of the Jewish people who are going to be itinerant. They're going to travel through the proverbial wilderness and they're going to travel from places to places until eventually God will lead them back to the promised land. I want to add, there was a tradition that there's 42 different places that the Jewish people have lived, or at least a significant part of the Jewish people have lived since the Second Temple was destroyed. And the tradition is that stop number 42 is America, which seems to indicate that we are close to the finish line. There is a statement that I heard in the name of Reb Chaim Velazhner, the primary disciple of the Gona Vilna. Someone asked him, when's Messiah coming? And he said, when there is Torah study that is flourishing in America, which at the time was unheard of, there was almost no Jews in America, and certainly not people who were studying Torah intensively, when the study of Torah in America, that's when the ultimate redemption will happen. 
And then later on, one of the subsequent sages said, well, it's not just America, not New York, not in California, not in Chicago, not one of the big cities. When there's Torah flourishing in Texas, then you're going to have the arrival of the ultimate redemption. That is what I've heard. And who knows, maybe we, all of us, are going to be contributors to the ultimate redemption by us studying Torah. Of course, our organization Torch is based in Houston, Texas, and we try very much to spread Torah, to disseminate Torah, not just in Texas, but all over the world on the podcast, etc. And who knows, maybe we're going to have a share in perfecting the world, perfecting our nation, and maybe even ushering in the Messiah, the idea of perfection, of, of culmination, of reunification, of consolidation, of bringing the world to its perfection. So the chapter of chapter 33 is going to tell us all the various places that they went from, and it's going to list place after place, location after location, stop after stop, and then eventually we read in verse 50, Hashem spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speed the children of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you drive out the inhabitants before you, destroy their idols, destroy their images, destroy their locations where they did their worshiping, possess the land, settle it, and I have given you the land to possess it. Rashi tells us, what does this mean? It means is that if you fulfill the mitzvah of ridding the land from its occupants and ridding the land from its idols, then you will be able to settle it. Otherwise, you won't be able to settle it. The Ramban, he has a different approach to this verse. This is a very famous Ramban. The Ramban tells us that this is not just God giving us a tiding that that we will be able to settle the land. Rather, it's telling us an obligation that there is a mitzvah for us to settle the land. There's a mitzvah in the Torah, the Jewish people, to settle the land of Canaan, known today, of course, as the land of Israel. And not just there's a mitzvah to settle the land of Israel, there's a prohibition for the Jewish people as a nation to settle in a foreign land. We could live in America, no problem. We could live in China. We could live in Poland, Lithuania, Mexico, wherever it is. But for the Jewish people as a nation to settle in a foreign land, that will be a prohibition. Of course, we know in the early part of the 20th century, the secular Zionist movement, uh, headed, of course, by Theodore Herzl, was very gung-ho about a plan to create a Jewish state in Africa in Uganda. According to the Ramban here, the Ramban would say that would be a prohibition. Of course, it didn't work out for a host of other reasons. But here we see that the Jewish nationhood, the Jewish statehood, is specifically in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel. And we're told also that we have to get rid of all the indigenous people. All the Canaanites that are there, we have to clear them out. If you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those of them who you leave shall be pins in your eyes, thorns in your side. They will harass you upon the land in which you dwell. And again, this is a very difficult commandment uh, for obvious reasons. That we're told that when we go into the land of Canaan, we have to drive out the people that are living there or else else there'll be a thorn in our side. And we know historically, they did not actually fulfill it. It took a while. Once they settled partially the land of Canaan, they allowed many of the people that were there previously to stay. And the book of Judges is essentially oriented around all the challenges, all the suffering that resulted from this mistake of not fully settling the land. What happens if we don't settle it? So the last verse of chapter 33 tells us, and it shall be, 
that what I had meant to do to them, I shall do to you. What God planned to do to our enemies, God will do to us if we don't clear out those enemies before we fully settle the land. Why is it so important for us to settle the land? And why is it so important for us to rid it of all its inhabitants that were there prior? So the Sephora tells us that what's going to be is, if the Jewish people don't get rid of the Canaanites, the idolaters that were there, for sure, without a doubt, they're going to deviate. They're going to follow their gods, the foreign gods. And as a result, they're going to be vulnerable to God punishing them. And therefore, they're urged to clear out the land, get rid of all the idolaters from the land, or else you will follow their ways and you will suffer as a result. Chapter 34 tells us about the boundaries of the land of Israel. And it goes through the north, the south, and the sides, and of course the west boundaries, the Mediterranean Sea. That's the easiest boundary for us to follow. But it lists the various cities in which the, the borderline crosses and how exactly it goes. Now, why is it important for us to know where the actual biblical boundaries of the land of Israel are? Rashi tells us because there are many mitzvos that apply to the land, and they don't apply outside of the land. And therefore, we have to know the boundaries, the borders of the land of Israel to know where these laws apply. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to figure out the exact dimensions. Uh, we don't have enough biblical cartographers. It's clear for sure that biblical Israel does not extend as far south as modern Israel. So in the stone edition of the art scroll that I have in front of me, there's actually a picture of where the or some of the theories are exactly of, of, of where the borders are. And you see there's at least two different options. It's not so clear exactly where these borders are. We know for sure that, for example, the place called Elat, which is at the southern tip of modern Israel, is actually outside of biblical Israel. Maybe it's annexed, maybe it's still included, but it's, it, it seems clear that there are certain parts of modern Israel that are not included in biblical Israel. In verse 16 of chapter 34, we read about the fiduciaries that are going to be appointed for each tribe, the heads of the tribes that are going to stand in for the tribe themselves in the division of the land. Chapter 35 talks about the cities that are going to be apportioned to the Levites. There's only 12 tribes, not including the tribe of Levi, that are going to be, di- that are going to be given contiguous portions in the land of Canaan. The Levites are going to be given cities that are scattered throughout the rest of the tribes. And of course, the reason for this is, or at least one of the reasons is, because the Levites are the clergymen. You can't have clergymen that are just in one location. They have to service the rest of the nation, and therefore they are, they're scattered not in one location, but throughout the land and next to all the tribes so they could offer their services to everyone else. And we're told in chapter 35 that they're given six plus 42 cities for a total of 48 Levite cities throughout the land of Canaan. Moreover, surrounding each one of these cities, there has to be like a green belt, a a, a part of the city that cannot be developed. It's dedicated for agriculture. It's dedicated for just space, but it cannot be developed into an urban sort of environment, a green belt of 2,000 cubits around the city. And so there's six of those cities are, that are also 
going to be cities of refuge for people who are accidental murder. If someone is an accidental murder, they have to run to a city of refuge. So that's six of those cities plus 42 other cities for a total of 48 cities. Now, there's a very interesting comment from the Kliyakar. He tells us that the reason why the Levites are not giving a land and they're given these cities, it's to give them a feeling of impermanence, that they're itinerant, that they're they're not settled. They always have to feel like they're they're a little bit not too comfortable. Similar to the idea of the 42 stops, there's 42 stops, there's 42 cities. They have to know they don't have a portion in the land of Israel. They have cities, but even the cities, they're not, they're, they don't have a sense of, of permanence. And that's why specifically to those cities do you send the accidental killers the people who have to go into the cities of refuge because they should not feel like they're the only outsiders. Of course, you have the Levites. The Levites don't feel that sense of security, of stability. They feel like outsiders. Well, that's the best place to put the accidental killers. They won't be like the only outsiders there. And that's, of course, similar to what Joseph did with his brothers. The brothers were outsiders once they arrived land of Egypt, and therefore Joseph rejiggered the rest of Egyptian society, moved everyone around from town to town, from place to place, that the brothers would not be the only outsiders. Now, it's another important note here. We'll read about this a little bit later on in in Deuteronomy. Even though there are six cities in which accidental murderers take refuge, still there's three of them on the eastern side of the Jordan, where the two and a half tribes of Reuven and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh are going to be permanently settled, and three of them on the western side of the Jordan, where nine and a half of the tribes are going to be settled. So obviously, you have a much larger population on the western side than on the eastern side, yet there's three on either side. So first of all, Rashi tells us that even though the three on the eastern side, where the Jewish people currently are, don't take effect until the three on the western side are, are are initiated, are instituted. Still, Moses decided to designate the three cities. He had an opportunity to do a mitzvah, and he said, I'm going to do it even though it doesn't actually take effect until the other three are designated. But there's a very interesting question Rashi asks in verse 14. You have, of course, two and a half tribes on one side of the Jordan, nine and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan. You would think that there's going to be more cities of refuge for more accidental murderers on the western side, where there's nine and a half tribes, and fewer on the eastern side, where there's only two and a half tribes. So why is there three on each side? So Rashi tells us, even though there's much fewer people on the eastern side of the Jordan, still there were more murderers. And therefore, you have to have a lot, or at least comparatively relative to the population, you have to have a lot of place of refuge on the eastern side. Now, there's an obvious question on this. We know that the city of refuge only is valid for someone who kills accidentally. So what does it mean that there's more murderers on the eastern side? This is not for murderers at all. These are people that are doing accidents. So the Ramban, he explains that, is that yes, of course, someone who goes to city of refuge is only if they're an accidental murderer. However, there were more actual murderers on the eastern side, and they would pretend that it was accidental. And therefore, they needed more cities of refuge on the eastern side. That's what Ramban says. But perhaps we can suggest the following. Remember, the people that are on the eastern side of the Jordan, the tribes of Reuven and Gad and half tribe of Manasseh, these are the people 
that were worried about their flocks and about their livestock. These are people who gave priority to the animals over their children. Maybe we could say that, yes, when someone goes to the city of refuge, it's only if they're accidental killers. But even then, there are priorities, there are life choices that lead to more accidents. If someone is negligent and someone dies, yes, it's an accident, it's not a willful murder, but maybe could have been avoided if they were a little bit more careful about human life. And here we see that these people, they gave priority to their animals before their children, and here we find out the consequence of that, they're more, they're more murderers there, i.e., the murders are accidental, but those are still considered murders because maybe they could have been avoided. And the chapter continues to talk about the laws of murder, about what would constitute a willful murder, what would constitute an accidental murder. And finally, we find out that that when someone is in a city of refuge, someone who killed accidentally is in a city of refuge, they go out of the city of refuge. They're released when the high priest dies. Why does the death of the high priest free the people that were in the city of refuge? Rashi tells us a very powerful idea because the high priest is responsible for the accidental murder. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, the high priest is working in the temple. What does he have to do with an accidental murder that happened on the other side of the country? And the answer is, and I think this again dovetails with the theme that we've been seeing again and again, the answer is that because he is the leader of the Jewish people, he's the spiritual leader of the Jewish people, he's almost the intermediary between the Jewish people and God, every bad thing that happens in the Jewish nation is on his shoulders. He's responsible. He should have prayed, and he didn't pray. And therefore, because he didn't pray sufficiently, it's his responsibility, and therefore his death atones, so to speak, for the sin, and therefore when he dies, all the accidental murderers are released from the city of refuge from their confinement. And then we see an idea that when someone is in charge, when someone's responsible, a parent for children, a rabbi for their for their constituents, Whatever it may be, if you're in charge of people and they suffer, even though you had nothing to do with the actual act that caused them to suffer, you are responsible because ultimately they're under your tutelage, they're under your oversight, and if they suffer, it's your responsibility. You should have prayed. The final chapter of the book of Numbers, chapter 36, talks about the daughters of Tzlavchot. We read about them a few weeks ago. These were women, five women whose father had died and left no male sons. And we read about how they are now allowed to inherit their father's land. But the people of their tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, they approach Moses and they say, we have a problem. What's going to be if these women, very eligible bachelorettes, they marry men who are not part of our tribe? So they're going to own the land given to their father, we're supposed to go to their father, and they're going to marry someone from the tribe of, I don't know, Yisachar. And then they're going to have children. And when they die, their land is going to be inherited by their children from their husband. And because their husband from, was from a different tribe, their children from a different tribe. And consequently, there's going to be a portion in our tribal lands that are going to be taken away, so to speak, by people of a different tribe. So Moses says, yes, you're correct. And therefore, these five women, they should choose whoever they want to marry, provided that they are from the tribe, that their father is from the tribe of Menashe. And that's a rule that women who inherit, i.e., 
when there is no brothers, there is no male heirs, and therefore the women are in line to inherit, they have to marry intra-tribally. And the Talmud tells us, of course, this only applied for that generation, only for the generation in which the inheritance, the division of the land was actually going to happen, the daughters should not marry someone from a different tribe if the daughters are going to inherit the land. What's the problem if someone else inherits the land? So the Sephora tells us a very powerful idea. We know each tribe had to really oversee the conquest of a land that was apportioned to them in the land of Canaan. And what's going to be if you have a tribe that has a certain amount of land and they know that there are certain parcels of the land that are going to be given to people from a different tribe. So they're not going to be as eager to do that conquest and therefore there's going to be portions of the land that are going to be left unconquered. And therefore, as a way to ensure that the initial conquest of the land is done completely, there is this law, this regulation that women who are set to inherit land marry intra-tribally, marry within their own tribe. Of course, once they enter the land of, of Israel, it became permissible for all to marry anyone from any other tribes. And in fact, the Talmud tells us this was a very happy occasion. It is the reason why the 15th day of the month of Av is one of the happiest days of the year because the barrier to the unity of the Jewish people was removed. Anyone can marry anyone else provided that they are part of the Jewish people. Chazak, chazak, venit chazek. Let us be strong. Let us be strong. May we be strengthened. The Almighty has merited us to complete the book of Numbers and we hope he gives us the strength and the fortitude and the wherewithal to continue in studying Torah, teaching Torah and moving on to the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you for listening. RabbiWalby.com, RabbiWalby.gmail.com. I look forward to speaking to you next week.